Hey gang, thanks for joining us for another episode of Book Club. This time I'm pretty stoked for this one. In fact, many of you alerted me to this book when it came out. We're talking to Graham Thompson, the author of a new book called Theme for Great Cities about one of my favorite bands, my sixth favorite band of all time, Simple Minds. Now, my personal feeling about Simple Minds is that they're kind of like Kiss in the sense that they're just as fun to talk about and debate and discuss as they are to listen to. Because when you go back and you listen to those early Simple Minds albums, there is nothing like them anywhere. No one has ever sounded like simple early Simple Minds, ever. And then they become more commercial and it becomes, it's kind of a gradual uh, evolution, but it happens. And then they become huge and then it kind of all falls apart a little bit. Anyway, I, you know, I have these thoughts and opinions stored in my brain and have done for decades, and it was so cool to get to talk to Graham about it all. He explains in the book why they were like that, how they became like that, how they changed, the decisions they made along the way, some good, many bad, that caused the change to happen. I love all facets of, of Simple Minds, but, and in fact, I, I should say, if the book if there, there should be two books, The Rise and then The Fall of Simple Minds, because, and then maybe The Rise again, but this is kind of more that rise period. It's so fascinating. And I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you too, we, he and I were just about to wrap up and then we kind of just kept going. And after the part where we kept going, it's more, it's even a little bit nerdery, even more nerdy, more insidery. I want to kick it off with his favorite song, In Trance's Mission. He picked this one. My outro song is my pick. Anyway, this is a great, great book. Even if you're not a Simple Minds fan, it's great. But if you are, it is absolutely essential. We have been waiting for years to get answers to some of these questions. And here they are. So thank you, Graham, for doing that. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for doing this with me. This is, uh, this is really important to me. And I appreciate that you're giving me your time. I'm a huge Simple Minds fan. I've been looking forward to reading this book for months. So I have so many uh, of my listeners who are reading it, and they tell me about it. And um, John, you got to get your hands on this book. So anyway, thank you for taking some time to chat with me about it. No, no, thank you, man. I really appreciate your interest in it. And it's great, actually, it's great to have some interest in it from over the pond, you know? I bet. Because, um, yeah, really, really, nice to, really nice to know that. So um no, it's my Good. pleasure. I'm okay. looking forward to it. So for starters, Graham, uh, looking over your your history here, I mean, you've been a writer for, writer for like 20 years, and there's books in your history on everyone from Elvis Costello to Phil. Is it Linnet or Linet? How do you guys it's say it? It's Linet. Well, well, that's how he said it. He said it was lie okay. not. So yeah, um, yeah Linet. Okay. I think we as Americans say Linet, and then we hear Linet sometimes. It's like Neil Pert and Neil, or Neil Neil Peart from Rush, mm, you know, yeah, yeah. anyway. And there's or Willie Boy Nelson. And Boy and there's Bowie, yeah. Yes, yes, all these things. And so what made you decide that Simple Minds was the band for your next project? It's a great question. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of multi-part answer to that. Um, and I suppose that the very first part of it is that it's it's straight out of my, my record collection. You know, th these are probably the records I'm writing about, which are the early Simple Minds albums, you know, from 1978 to 1984, 85, you know, they are among the first records I ever loved, first music I ever really loved. You know, they sure. are, the, I got into them in, in, when I was about 11 or 12, you know, that, that band. And so they are the, one of the first bands I've ever loved and I've never stopped loving them. I've kind of, you know, my eye has been turned by other bands over the years, but I've always come back to those records because I think they're extraordinary. So that's the first thing, you know, they really are kind of... Uh, a band that I love and their music it's music that I really love. The second thing I think is that I felt I was kind of, you know, I was putting my flag in ground that hadn't been over cultivated uh, culturally. You know, I, I don't think, you know, there are some bands that you feel I'm not sure there's much more to say about that artist. Um, and I didn't feel that with Simple Minds. I felt actually it was still quite fresh territory and that that's exciting because as much as you might love music, it's not always possible to write about it or write about it interestingly in a book. So I did feel there was there was a, an interesting book to be written about that music. And also, and you alluded to it there, you know, in terms of the people I've written about in the past, they've tended to be singular characters, you know, solo artists or the leaders of bands. 
kind of visionary mavericks, often like John Martin and Kate Bush as well. And I'd, I kind of felt I'd, I'd grown a little tired of that. So I, I was really interested uh, in writing this book in the kind of creative, collective democracy that is a really good band. When a band is functioning properly and you have five, in this case, five musicians feeding into it and, and all coming kind of up with different ideas, and genuinely kind of sharing the workload pretty much democratically as they were for the first few records. I think that's a really exciting and interesting thing. And, and I find myself interested in, in how that sort of panned out because actually you listen to those early records and it's very hard to know how they happened. I <laughs> how that music agree. Was, you know, I, I play a little bit of, you know, not very good guitar and it's music that you cannot, I've never been able to sit down and play mm -hmm. I Travel or In Trances Mission or these amazing songs. They, they're kind of magical. And so it was a kind of present to myself in a way that I thought, well, I'm going to work out how these records were made. Um, so I hope that answered your question. So there's a lot going on in there, but it was this idea of, of the band. And I think they, they're an exemplar of a band in that early period of, who, who really did function as a, as a true collective. And I think that's quite exciting when it works. One of the things that I think about when I, uh, about Simple Minds that they're a, they are a fun band to talk about or to think about or to wonder about. Not every band is like that. In some ways, they remind me a little bit of Kiss. People who like Kiss can't stop thinking about Kiss because they're baffled by what would drive human beings to do or make those decisions in their life and in their careers. And Simple Minds, I feel like, is similar. Where you, like you were saying, you go to, you listen to early music, which has, I mean, aside from the first album, you listen to Life in a Day, and every song is like, oh, that's the Modern Lovers song, and that's the. Velvet Underground song, and that's yeah. the Kraftwerk song. But yeah, after that, yeah. yes. But for the next few albums after that, you've never heard anything like it. Nothing, and you, like you said, you can't for the life of you even figure out who would come up or make up something like this. It's so mm -hmm. otherworldly. But then to have them settle into, for a while there, a very commercial, regular, still great, but commercial sound. You just think. Who whose brains work this way? And you find out yeah. it's Jim and Charlie, you know? Well, that's the other interesting thing, isn't it? Is that is is the journey they went on uh, is kind of extraordinary. And it's it's messy, you know, it's not it's not a neat story. No. And I, I did want to kind of have that explained to me as well, because I think it's it's far too easy to say, and that accusation is leveled at them a lot, you know, they kind of sold out and they and they took the big arena box and they uh, you know, and they took the American dollar and, and all that, and I think that's a bit reductive and 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 over strategizes actually what was going on. And I wanted to kind of get a sense of how they did evolve from making that very mysterious abstract music into making very streamlined, accessible commercial music in the space of you know two or three years. Actually, that that happened yeah. very quickly, as everything did happen very quickly in the early Simple Mind story. It's an incredibly fast story so yeah it, it is fun because there are there are many bands within one band and, and, I, and i was although i'm really focusing on the, the very early years of that it does encompass the whole the whole kind of journey of simple minds and it does sort of bring the story up to date at the end and i felt at the end i, I did i did it was a bit clearer in my head about how this actually happened and you're right it jim Kerr, i mean i think jim kerr is you know absolutely essential to that he he came out of the book for me writing it as just really extraordinary yeah. Person much, much more interesting and complex than I think maybe a lot of people would imagine, maybe maybe looking at, at the more commercial side of Simple Minds, a really driven guy. And then four other, many actually, many other extraordinary musicians who, who fed into that as well. But yeah, so it's a really fascinating, fun story, partly because of where they came from and where they ended up as well. It is. When I think about that, first of all, we should say for your book, there almost needs to be a part two because you detailed kind of the rise and I don't know if fall is the right word, but the downside of that rise, how they got to be, you know, to the commercial peak. One of the things that struck me in the book, and you tell me if I'm right, is the level of ambition. I think of ambition as being almost the key word to define or describe the whole trajectory of it, because it seemed clear to me that it, maybe not from the beginning, but once Jim had an artistic, an artist's soul, an artist's perspective, a desire to be creative, and he found a foil in Charlie who would not necessarily be his equal, 
but would enable or empower him to follow his muse. I see Charlie, as much as I love him, less as an equal and more as an enabler in a way. And the, everybody else either had to get on that train and follow Jim or they were gone. And that ambitious streak with, coupled with a massive desire for artistic integrity, not everyone can carry both of those things at once. And we saw, if you were old enough, like I was, in real time to see Simple Minds try and ultimately fail to carry those bo both of those things equally at one time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that sums it up really, really well, actually. Um, the word that kept leaping out at me was mission. And people used it a lot, mm -hmm. mission. You know, they were, they were on a mission. And, it, and ambition is definitely wrapped up in that. They, they were incredibly driven. But it, yeah, Jim at the vanguard. But Jim, as a non-musician, you know, Jim kind of had his limitations. He, he, he really relied on first Charlie. And, and Charlie was the first to say, I would still be playing in the pubs in Glasgow if it wasn't for Jim. I'd be quite happy probably just playing the guitar. I'm a nervous musician as he is. He, I don't think he had that drive. So they, they each enabled each other in that sense. Jim needed the music in order to articulate Good this point. incredibly kind of abstract vision that he had. He, he didn't really have any other tools. So he, he relied on these guys. And actually what was very, I think, very kind of courageous cr creatively was uh, after Life in a Day, and they realized very quickly Life in a Day wasn't the record they wanted to make, and it was far too kind of orthodox. And and, mm -hmm. and instead of it just being Jim and Charlie writing the songs, as it was on that record, they said, no, we're going to bring everybody into this collective, and we're all going to contribute to the music, and it's going to be really weird, and we're not really writing songs anymore. We're, we're just writing pieces of music. So it, it is ambitious, but it's it's not ambitious for commercial success no, initially. No, that's it. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's ambitious to do something kind of extraordinary. And then, yes. as you say... Uh, as you say, over time and with people leaving, which I think is also very important, yeah, the, the center cannot hold. You cannot be that abstract, incredibly yeah. inventive band and also be that really ambitious band that wants to, you know, take it to the penthouse suite. So that's what you see in the mid '80s is that that cracking up. It still yes. leads to very interesting music, um, but but and that's what interested me. I think. The, the creative process after that becomes less interesting. It's not that the music necessarily becomes less interesting. It's just the way that it's made yeah. becomes less kind of intense. Yeah. Um, and so that was the story I wanted to tell. But it, it is, there is an awful lot going on in those few years, I think. Yeah. It is. I can't remember if you said it or if it was a quote from somebody else in the book, but the thing, one of the big takeaways for me was, you just touched on this a second ago, that Jim doesn't write songs, he makes music. And I had never thought of the difference before but that is so true because it's not, you think of people sitting down writing chorus lyrics versus, you know, hooks. That's not, especially in the early days, that's not what Simple Minds was about. It was a vision. And in fact, I'm just imagining because the, all the non sequiturs and, and empires and dance, America is a boyfriend, uh, sweat as bullet, all these weird words that don't even feel like they should go together. And yet they do. Uh, I'm just imagining him just having a notebook full of words that he's writing next to each other to see what they even look like when they are said together or look like together and then throws them into songs as lyrics. And we're left, boy, does that mean something? What does that mean? I don't know what that means, but this sounds yeah. good. It sounds like it should mean something. It's so true. And it's so it's really exciting because actually you cannot pin it down. And yet it does work because at that point, there's such a symbiosis between the music and the words mm -hmm. and the voice and the atmosphere. They all just seem to be on the same wavelength, although they're all coming from completely different directions in, in many ways. So it doesn't make literal sense. But yeah, I think Jim is, because Jim, you know, these guys were given carte blanche to just play. They would play for five hours. There was no intention of writing a, a kind of coherent piece of music. And Jim would be the one and I can see, and, and writing it, I completely saw him in my mind's eye. You know, he would be on the on the work floor. You know, he would be down there listening and saying, yeah, that that two-second bit there that you just played, that's the song. That's the chorus. That's the piece of magic, as he called it, that is going to work. It's nothing to do with G and C and B minor or chords. It's to do with just that little combination when everything works. And he was real, and it surprised me how relentless he was in actually identifying those moments and he would go away and listen to it. He would play the tape over and over again. And very slowly they would all 
it would kind of come together and coalesce into something that was at least a little more coherent, even if it wasn't the song. And I, I must admit, before the, before researching the bit, I didn't realize how kind of pivotal he was in shaping that and then giving it these extraordinary titles and these extraordinary words that just seemed to fit. And occasionally knowing when not to sing and not to write any words Good and just point. saying, this is an, this is an instrumental. I, I'm, yeah. I'm in the way here, so I'm going to back off. And that's very clever as well. So, yeah. um, and, you know, and we're just talking about the records and also the whole live thing and the, you know, how charismatic he was there. So, yeah, I mean, although he couldn't have done any of that without the other four guys initially in the band, uh, it wouldn't have worked without him mm-hmm. just being the kind of auteur, really, and the visionary. Of- There's something else, too, that I, so we've talked about how great they were, but I love all chapters of Simple Minds, so I don't see it necessarily. I did, they did go through kind of a dark, uh, you know, period there for a while, but I love all of it. In fact, I re-listened to every Simple Minds album in order, as I often do, to get ready to talk to you because it was so fresh on my mind. But it struck me as something I was mentioning earlier about ambition, and you're right, it's not necessarily, it didn't start out as commercial ambition. It starts out as artistic ambition, the commercial aspect get, finds them because they start making music people want to hear. So the venues get bigger. So the sound has to get bigger. And there's something I was thinking about it in getting ready to talk to you. There's something about ambition that can either be really endearing or really off-putting. It depends on how the pop, how the how the masses, if they can smell it on you. For instance, yeah. even though Simple Mind they downplay this, but you can't. Simple Minds are always going to be compared to U2. They just are. U2 had similar ambitions coming from a similar place at a similar time. And for whatever reason, their ambition didn't didn't rub you the wrong way quite as much as Simple Minds did to earlier fans anyway. But then there's another band like Coldplay who wore their ambition on their sleeves too. We want to be one of the biggest bands in the world. And they were for a minute and now they're not anymore. And it's almost because people, whoa, like, don't force your ambitious will on me. I don't have to make you biggest <laughs> band in the world. You know, yeah. it's not my job. Yeah. And I feel like Simple Minds were, were guilty of that a little bit. How do you reckon the next phase of their career? Well, you see, I kind of agree with you, but I also think, actually, it's kind of paid off now because yes, you, two have, you, two have no, you two have nowhere left to go. You two are now at the point where, they can't downsize anymore. Anything less than, you know, a multi-million selling album or a arena tour is a failure, and and they can't do that anymore. So, I think Simple Minds now are in a really good place because actually it's been much more up and down. Yeah, I think, yeah, the U two thing is inevitable. It certainly annoyed the band. You know, they were called U three for many years over here, which I think was deeply unfair. And I do write in the book about. I think the influence worked the other way mm-hmm. much more in the early days. You know, you two really picked up a lot in Simple Minds. But when you get into that big music and that big open air music, I think some. I think you two were, were actually better at it. I think I think it, it just worked better for them. And I, I think I never felt Jim was that comfortable um, in that period from sort of eighty five to nineteen ninety. I felt that was someone who was again trying on personas, which he was early on, but they were they were much more kind of artistic personas. From for from sort of eighty five live aid on to you know nineteen early nineties I think he was trying on clothes that didn't really fit him mm-hmm. um, and as, you're right you can you can smell it you can see it um, I think he's much better at that now I saw them a couple of years a couple of months ago and um, they, they he he can somehow now embody all aspects of his yes. I don't know how it's a sort of trick but he can now embody all aspects of Simple Minds career. He can be quite cheesy when it, the mood takes him, and he can be very direct and very kind of focused on those early songs. Um, and that might just be a time thing. But I think, I think they they did lose their way, and I think America threw them. I think that yeah. I think don't you forget about me threw them, and I think the fact it wasn't their own song threw them. And also, you two have always kept the same people in the band, and I, I think we often overlook the fact, you know, in, in on Wikipedia, they say, well, you know, such and such left and this guy joined. And it's like, it's a line mm-hmm. in the biography. No, it, it's a cog in the machine that you're pulling yeah. out. I mean, in the case of Simple Minds, Brian McGee, who's this very understated, rhythmic, relentless drummer, beautiful drummer, but but very unsure, is replaced by Mel Gaynor, who is a, who's a cannonball, you know, powerhouse. Yes. 
And that completely transforms the music. It's not about strategy at that point. It's about the guy who's behind you on stage just yes. blasting it out and everybody else having to lift themselves up. And that accounts for, you know, from Promise You a Miracle to Waterfront. That's what you're hearing. You're yeah. hearing everybody just trying to meet that kind of power. So, Good point. yeah, I mean, I, wanted, I did want to kind of make the case that it wasn't about strategies you know it was about it, it's about and about playing what's in front of you if, if yeah. as you say if there's now five thousand people or ten thousand people mm-hmm. what are you going to do yeah you have to hit That's the back true. of the hall yeah um i thought it was interesting that mel opted not to participate in your book i had mel on here actually five or six years ago i believe on the podcast and um it was a dream i've had him and robin clark on here and I've tried, Derek has agreed to come on, but then I've never heard from him again. And they're the only ones, you know, so, cause I, I can't stop talking about or thinking about simple minds, but it was having Mel on here. It was interesting because he clearly was uncomfortable talking about a lot of the simple mind stuff. And, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but I will. After the episode came out, I received quite a few emails or messages from people telling me what was really going on, some of the real behind the scenes, some of the unsavory things, characters, habits, addictions that are that feed a lot of the a lot of the uncertainty where it comes from. What was so Mel just told you I don't want to talk about simple minds? Yeah, effectively, yes. Yeah, he sent an email just saying I think it's a footnote in the book saying he's yep. really got nothing to say on it. Um and I I wouldn't want to speculate on why that was. I mean I I you know, having spoken to Simple Minds Management and things, I have an idea of, of what might be going on. But I respect that. I, I was sad that he didn't want to take part because he's a huge, you know, out with the original band members. I think he's, you know, the main the main player outside of that. But, um, you know, I respect yeah. that. And uh, yeah. So how do, we, how do we feel about Derek? Because, so I was thinking also getting ready to talk to you. Mm. I counted down my top three biggest mistakes that simple minds made in their career <laughs> and i'll save number one for a little bit later but number three to me was not putting don't you forget about me on once upon a time it didn't yeah. ruin anything it didn't hurt the album necessarily but they missed out on a on a potentially nice chunk of change that yeah. album might have yeah. sold another two million copies or so yeah. making it a bigger deal and so they lost out on some revenue the second one was getting rid of Derek of Derek. And the only thing I can think of after reading your book was that he just was didn't want he wasn't as focused or ambitious at that moment enough. Even though yeah. so much of the sound prior to that was built off of his bass lines. He's key to the sound of simple minds. And yet they thought we can do it without this guy. Yeah. It's never I, sat well. <clears throat> No, and I think actually, I think, you know, having read the book, hopefully you'll see that I think Jim, you know, virtually admits in the book that was a mistake and, and we should have taken some time out and actually thought about it a bit more. And also, not just musically, but this guy's our mate and, you know, he got sacked, I think, the week, don't you forget about me, went into the charts. You know, it, it was a, a huge life-changing blow for that person and I think you probably deserved another a second chance. Um, Derek, I mean, I, I, Derek Forbes should be a worldwide known name as far as I'm concerned. I think he's one great. of the great, just one of the most astonishingly creative bass players ever. And as you say, those those albums are unthinkable without him uh, yes. on them because the bass is the foundation, it's the load-bearing stone of those songs, mostly. And it's um, it's astonishing work. And um, I wish more people knew about it. But um, yeah, I think there was there was that sense that he was a little bit more showbiz than the other guys. And I think once they were already on a pretty good trajectory by this point, certainly in Europe. And I just think he started playing the rock star a little bit more than was comfortable with some of the other band members. And he wasn't around as much as maybe he should have been. But then also the way they were writing had changed. So he wasn't, he didn't need to be around as much because they weren't, they were starting to write in different ways. They're starting to write slightly more compartmentalized. So I think it's maybe a little unfair to throw that at him, but I wasn't there. But but there was certainly a frustration that he wasn't kind of pulling his weight. Yeah. But also, and I, I kind of wanted just to correct it slightly, there is this great kind of mythology around Derek, is that Derek left and the band just kind of went to pot and, and they were never the same. And I think, you know, the change had really happened 
prior to him leaving. There's a big change with Sparkle in the Rain. You know, I think he was as invested in being a huge rock star and, and, and taking that music as far as you, it could go as, as anyone else in the band. So I don't think he would have necessarily kept them on that kind of, you know, alternative underground mm-hmm. path musically. I think he was he was kind of along for the ride as much as anyone else. But certainly, you know, you take Brian McGee out and then you take Derek Forbes out. That's two-fifths of the original yeah. band. And yeah. that does account a huge amount, I think, for what, what they sounded like. After that, I, but I mean, uh, you know, he's still he, he's a very he's a he's a he's a very nice, lovely man, and I think he's, um, you know, he's done okay for himself. But I think there is still a big part of him that's like, yeah. you know, there was an alternative path my life could have gone on, yeah, and it was taken taken away from me. And I think a lot of the band do have regrets over that. So the obvious question then is, why not fix it? And the only thing I can think of is that by fixing it you admit some defeat, you admit you made a mistake and there might be an unwillingness there to admit that. And we've talked about Jim's hunger for the last three simple minds albums to me are on par with a lot of their really best work. Um, I I really think they've been back the last three albums. So if if it, is it an issue of Jim not just wanting to admit defeat, but also not wanting to work backwards and always wanting to move work forwards? And if bringing, you know, Derek back into the fold means turn, you know, not having my my focus completely one hundred percent forward. Do you think? Yeah, I think there might be an element of that. Of course, they did bring him back in for for uh, Neapolis. you know Neapolis yeah. and 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 that tour and it. You know, there's a lot that I didn't put in the book about the kind of aftermath of the band. And I think they all kind of get on, but I think, you know, there have been times when they've all been in the room, you know, Brian included. You know, there was times they had meetings and and went to the studio um, and tried stuff out. And it, Jim just said it wasn't there anymore. It just didn't, it didn't feel right anymore. And whether that's about genuinely, the, you know, the chemistry between those personalities, whether it's, it is musically, whether it's about you know, not wanting to share the songwriting anymore. You know, whatever it is, that dynamic, it worked and then it didn't work. And I, I think, I think that was genuine from his part. But I also do think there is this intense focus on, you know, keeping it fresh. And you know, the, the, the five by five tour they did ten years ago when they went back to all those old songs, which you you may have thought would have been the perfect opportunity to get the old exactly. band back together. Yeah. Um, and I, and it was just prior to that there was some discussions about doing that and it just didn't it it didn't work for whatever reason. I think a lot of it was, you know, I suppose old grievances coming up. And, and you know, they were 20, 21 when they made those records. And by this point they're in their fifties. And and, yeah. and I suppose that sense of mission and that collectiveness hasn't has gone. And um yeah. there's also I think, you know, Charlie definitely would have Mick Mick McNeil, I think, would would be welcomed back into that band in, in a second, in a heartbeat. I think we would definitely have Mick back in, but Mick doesn't want to mm-hmm. live that life anymore. Mm-hmm. And they've got this incredible band now, and, and it, yeah. I suppose it does feel more. It, it feels more current. They've got three women in the band. It's it's, yep. a, it's a big it's a big show. Yep. Uh, they play the old stuff, and it sounds great, and and it sounds kind of fresh. So I think there is that sense of yeah, we're not. Jim always uses this phrase, you know, we're not punch drunk boxers going around in the 80s revival circuit you know yeah. we we are simple minds now uh we're very proud of what we did in the past but <clears throat> we want to make it new again and so i think i'm not sure admission of defeat is quite right but there is certainly a sense of, of yeah we can still we can still make this fresh as simple minds in 2022 without yeah. just kind of having to, to make a recreation or a nostalgic that's um, very good yeah you're right okay two things that this is more spider. Uh, this is more fan to fan talk about simple minds right. than it is relating specifically to your book. I have always, first of all, the book did. I was kind of surprised to hear how their criticisms of uh, Sparkle in the Rain, because I really like that album a lot. That I, I have it in my top three actually, wow. and they feel like it's just a little too one note, like the the bigness of it or the heavy sound of it doesn't let up Mm -hmm. and that that is a detriment. Whereas to me, I like that aspect of Mm -hmm. it. I also have 
I like New Gold Dream, but it doesn't excite me like it does a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious what you think. The, my reasoning for New Gold Dream is um, like I think about I equate it to uh, Roxy Music's Avalon album because <laughs> a lot of people love Avalon and it's a great album. But to me, only Roxy Music could have made the albums before Avalon. And anyone could have made Avalon. Does that yeah. make sense? It does make sense. And yeah, so and Avalon does. kind of polishes off the weird, rough edges of a really unique band. And it's beautiful, and it, but it's a little too streamlined for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel mm-hmm. that way about New Gold Dream. There's still a lot of quirky weirdness, but some of the rough edges are too polished off. I feel like 10 other bands could have made New Gold Dream, but only Simple Minds could have made Sons and Fascination. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and I would I would agree with you up to a point. I, I'm I'm also not. I love New Good Dream, but it's, it wouldn't be in my top five probably. And I think it does. You know, in the wrong circumstances or in the wrong frame of mind, it can just kind of drift by. I mean, I think maybe what you're alluding to there, it, it can become background music quite easily yes. in, in a way that in a way that none of those early records yes. can. Yeah. They demand your attention. But I think if you are focused on it, it, it has myriad beautiful things in it. But it, it is very smooth, and there's a sheen yes. to it. Um, that jagged bit has almost gone. And it's interesting, you know, I think I mentioned in the book, you know, the, the, the most, for me, the most interesting songs in that record, which are King is White and In the Crowd and Hunter and the Hunted, are the first songs they wrote for that record. And everything else, you can see them getting a little bit more accessible and, and streamlined and mainstream. But it's, it's still a beautiful record. But yes, it's it's becoming... I suppose by necessity they're becoming just more accessible, and I suppose we have to remember they've made. Well, if we count sons and sisters as, as two records, they've made five records in three years, and and virtually got nowhere. So I, I think there was a real sense at that point we need to cut through a little bit more. Yeah, Sparkle in the Rain. I kind of agree with you. I I, I love the sound of Sparkle in the Rain when the songs can withstand, you know, when they support it, um, and I think on the first side in particular. Um, they can. You know, Speed You Love to Me, I think, is one of the, the great Simple Minds songs. Um, the second side to me just starts to... I, I do agree with Jim. I think the songwriting doesn't just quite stand up to that barrage. And so it becomes yeah. a little bit a little bit uh, uh, harsh on the ear. And, uh, uh, but, but um, yeah, and it's got a terrible cover. You know, the cover is, one of the, I think, one of the 10 worst album covers. I don't have a problem with the cover at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... But you know, you know, it's it's. Um, I think just the switch, it, uh, and Steve Lilly White, you know, who's a great producer, but I think just wanted to capture that bigness and that Mel Gainerness yeah. off the band. And, Mel Gainerness, you know, that's it. Yeah, you know, he's front and center of those arrangements, and yeah. wow, it's incredible. And it starts with him clicking in time, and bang, it goes off. But yeah, by you know, forty minutes later, you're a bit like, whoa. Um, yeah, it's um, true. It's true. Yeah, that, that, that's what I feel. Lily White is my second favorite producer of all time. And so I am partial to anything he does, especially at mm. that time, because I just love that sound. The the big country U2 Marshall Crenshaw sound. Um have you have okay. you have you had have you had Steve on your, your show? Oh, that's a touchy subject, Graham. Oh right. So, Sorry. No, it's okay. I'll tell you. So um he has agreed to come on, and then I will follow up with him and he'll go silent for like a year. And then he'll finally reply and say, oh, I'm all talked out. I've been doing so many interviews lately. Let's do this later. And I'll wait a few months and I'll reply and reply. And then a year later, he'll finally say, oh, I'm so talked out. And I'm like, okay, how do I get to be one of the people that you talk to when you're not talked out? You know, how can I talk to you? Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell me next time you're not talked out and let me be one of those people. So I'm thinking I'm going to, I was waiting to talk to you. I'm going to email him again today. Say we talked because he obviously contributed to the book, but, um, okay. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. And that's a, what everyone an tells me. And, and a, everything. Fund, a fund of stories. He's, he's yes. a wonderful talker. Yeah. I love him deeply. And uh, he probably yeah. just feels like all anyone wants to talk about is you too. And we don't have to do that. There's lots of other things we can right. talk about. Yeah. Um, so Okay, I didn't prep you with this question, but I did allude to it earlier. If you were to think about the biggest mistake Simple Minds have made in their career, what do you yeah. think it would be? Whoa. Um, well, I think your top three was, I, I wouldn't worry too much, but don't you forget about me not being on the 
on the on Once Upon a Time. Although, yeah, I'm sure that would have made them a few million. It was more a financial mistake than anything, not yeah. an artistic one. Well, yeah. I think no, but I think also, I mean, in terms of their reach, I think it would have made a huge difference yes. probably in America for a few more years because mm-hmm. that dropped off a cliff, cliff pretty quickly, didn't it? I think mm-hmm. their their stature in America. I think. I mean, I keep going back to personnel because what I was so interested and excited by writing the book was how how those five people work together, you know, and, and what they could come up with almost without, you know, none of them could explain it to me. They couldn't really articulate what it was they did and how, how it happened that way. Mm-hmm. It was a, a form of magic and, and chemistry. So I think, and, and going back to Mel Gaynor and that whole big leap, I think Brian McGee leaving in 1980, mm. when all, all he needed was a, he needed three months on a mm-hmm. beach somewhere. Yeah, you know, he just needed to, to slow down. And, and you know, it's hard to overemphasize the, the pace they were moving at at that point. It was just album tour, album tour, um, record. And he was worn out. And I think if they'd maybe just taken a step back um, and let him recuperate and, and, and kept him in the band. But it's a huge what if. It's a, it's a counterfactual narrative that, that so many things wouldn't have happened. New Go Dream probably wouldn't have happened. And it would, it would never have happened because Jim just wasn't that kind of person. And you alluded again to it earlier. You know, you're with me or against me. You know, this yeah. is the train. This is the train that's moving 100 miles an hour. Just over the hill, there's a hit single and a hit album. I can see it. Um, and so you hang on or, or don't. And actually, if they, if they had stopped and taken the foot off the gas, then none of what came after might have happened anyway. So it's impossible to say. But I feel maybe keeping that collective together a little bit longer. I think keeping Derek in the band would have always, it's like having a, you know, a, a, an ace up your sleeve always with someone like that in the band because he's, his inventiveness is just so incredible that mm-hmm. he would have always contributed something amazing to the band. And I, I think we definitely lost something at that point. And I think if we're looking at the, you know, the kind of global reach of Simple Minds and the reason I was saying I'm really pleased to talk to you because you're in America is where they're really known for one song, kind of, by, yeah. by a lot of um, you know, I think that big break after um Once Upon a Time and then coming back with Belfast Child, which is a very kind of brave song, but it's not a song that's ever going to cut through in the States. I think they would probably say we made a mistake there. We, we should have probably f- followed up quicker with something a little bit more like what people recognized. And then we could have mm-hmm. branched out a bit more. That was, that's exactly what I had for number one was uh, street fighting years. I feel like is the big mistake of their career, at least from now, again, my perspective, as you know, is an American perspective. Mm. We didn't Belfast child doesn't mean anything to anybody over here. The, yeah. First of all, Once Upon a Time is huge, thankfully, deservedly so. Three big singles off of that. One, two, four big singles, three big singles off that. And then it's followed up a little bit later with the live album, which yeah. uh, is okay. I mean, it's it's okay, but it's it represents the new big Simple Minds, not the early you know, Simple Minds that yeah. they built their bona fides on. And then it's still another couple of years before this is This Is Your Land comes out over here, which is so boring. And it's just not that album. And I, Trevor Horn is my number one favorite producer of all time. Yeah. But that yeah. album is so bloated and so boring. Talk about smelling someone's ambition. It is just, it is not what anyone wanted. And they took too long to put it out. And it reeked of over bloatedness, at least in the States, in, in the, in the, UK, you can have your Belfast child and your Biko and and all this kind of stuff, but it just was the wrong album to capitalize on what had just happened to you. And I had heard, I, I, and you didn't touch on this one thing real quick. I had heard yeah. that Jim was battling some major writer's block, and that's why it took so long. But you didn't mention that in the book, and so I've always wondered if that wasn't true. Anyway, continue. I haven't, I haven't heard that, and, and he didn't tell me that. He, I think, and and it's it's kind of where my book finishes. It's where that album begins or they begin to make it is you know i think they were burned out there's a natural arc there they've been going for eight nine years absolutely non-stop and i think the motor powered down and i think it took a very long time to get it powered back up again and i think you can hear that on that record mm-hmm. it's not it's not just ambition it's it's a self-consciousness now and i think it's a post live aid of yes. we need to we need to say something what are we going to say that's meaningful and, and i think that actually took a lot out of the band instead of that wonderful uh, non-linear lyric lyricism that they had in the past. Now it's about the message, and mm-hmm. I don't think Jim was very good at writing 
the message. I think he was much better at letting us work out what the hell he was talking about. So but that album was was very it was huge here, and you know Belfast I was the number one over here, and their first number one. But the next albums weren't very successful, and I think that was a reaction to Street Fighting Years that that they got a reputation for being, as you say, a bit overblown, a bit windy, and they were. I think they were being reactive. They were reacting now to this is what people think we are. This is uh-huh. we have to be. We have to be a big important band playing. Mandela concerts and, and, and you know, all of which is very worthy, but it didn't didn't play to their strengths at all. So I think, yeah, yeah it all kind of went a bit wrong after that. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> I'm I'm contradicting myself a little bit here because I actually really liked the Real Life album a lot, and <laughs> um, and See the Lights was a decent sized hit over here, and nothing else off of it was. But I know like um, Let There Be Love and stuff like that were bigger hits in Europe and stuff like that. And I think if you had if you had taken out Street Fighting Years and put out Real Life after Once Upon a Time, that would have been to an American a more natural pro- progression or trajectory. You might have been able to sque- and then maybe like swap Real Life and Street Fighting Years around, and the story makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, you know, yeah. but um, what, what, I mean, I think what what you hear in Street Fighting Years is a band of prog rock enthusiasts who have now got permission to do whatever they want. And they're making this big, lavish, lavish, very slow record um, because they can, and they've built their own studio on the, on the, in a loch in the hillside. I think there's moments on it that are actually quite, quite they're lovely. Like, but definitely, it, it, definitely. Yeah. Um, but it, but as you say, it, it, it's, it's a kind of blip in the narrative. It doesn't really belong anywhere. And as the big album following up your big hit album, uh, it wasn't what was required, certainly in the States. But yeah, over here, again, I think, yeah, they made some interesting albums in the early early 90s, and it's a bit punchier again, kick it in. They're, they're a little bit more rhythmic again and uh, punchier. But by then, it's too, it's back to Jim and Charlie. You know, Mick has left, and so they're really reinventing what Simple Minds can be. And I think that took them, you know, coming up to what you said about the more recent albums, it took them a good 15 years, I think, to... Definitely. Or, or 20 years to actually work out, yes, this is what we're good at, and we can now do it again. Uh, unselfconsciously, which I think is what they're doing now. It's interesting too. Uh, like good news from the next world didn't do great. She's a river did pretty did okay over here mm-hmm. at least on like alternative radio. I remember hearing it all the time. In fact, that's when I finally got to see them live. Was on that tour. Um, I've only been able to see them twice because they don't come to the states as often anymore. Um, but it's interesting. The good news album to me sounds one note. What they were saying about um sparkle in the rain to me good news hits one level of sonicness of busyness Mm -hmm. and doesn't Mm -hmm. let up all eight songs sound like a continuation of each other and that can be true i i in a in a better way like the last like i said the last three albums i think are really excellent but in some ways they're kind of noisy too they're uh Mm -hmm. There's a lot. There's a lot of cacophony going on there. It's there's no subtlety or anything like that. But they're strong. The songs are stronger than some of the other ones were. Does that make sense? I think that's true. It does. I think. I think it's it's also now how you, it's how you record, isn't it? I mean, everything's mm. done Good out point. of the box. No, it's, yeah. it's not. It's not a band in a room anymore. So I think I hear that in a lot of a lot of albums by artists I love now is that it feels quite. Uh, it feels simultaneously quite small and too noisy uh, for some reason there's there's not that kind of bandwidth anymore and i think it's to do with how you how you create and i think you know charlie is now pretty much doing everything you know the song they put out active love at the start of this year is just mm-hmm. it's charlie doing everything and then jim thinking on it so but but the songs and, and because simple minds have always relied not just on a catchy chorus or a hook you know it's about so much more than that their greatest music it, it's all about layered atmosphere and it's about the lyrics hitting the music in the right way so it's it's hard to i think it's hard to get it right and also i think the more you do it it's not quite diminishing returns but i think it probably get hard, it gets harder and harder to do something interesting and i think they've really they've managed it really well yeah and also the kind of the parallel narrative to all that is they've always been a really great live band you know they've yeah. always managed to put on a fantastic show and there was there was a couple of weeks ago they were as good as i've seen them in a long time they were really really very good and um I think that's always kind of kept them, certainly on this side of um, the Atlantic and in Europe, they've always been, you know, a cut above the kind of 80s bands because they've been able to put on a great show. And they've got 
now a dozen or 15 really great songs that they can play, play in any set. So yeah, um, it's tricky now for all those bands, I think, making records. It's, it's really hard. And, and going back to that question you said about why don't they just do it the way they used to do it and get everyone back in, I just, it, it's, I think it's harder than that. Yeah. That's so, it's interesting because to an outsider, I think what's so hard about that, mm. you know? And, and you, you commented on how self-aware they are. They know what people say about them. Jim's aware that people like us are having this conversation, you know, picking apart their choices and decisions and for better or worse, he's aware that that stuff's out there. So it's almost like they know what people want from them, but they are just going to do it their way. Like you, we were talking about the way they used to write songs. I don't, it's tough because I don't expect them to go back to what they were doing in 1979, but why not try it? You know, just see. But I think they, I think they did. I, I really, I think, I think so. they did. As far as I'm aware, they did, they did try it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there was a flurry of phone calls at the end of the day and it didn't, it didn't work. And okay. um, whether that's just five people in a room who no longer can click that way or whether someone's not, uh, you know, yeah. as fluid or hasn't practiced as much as they should have done or whether the two guys who run the band are now like, we run the band and yeah. we'll tell you what to play. And there was definitely a little bit of that as well, I think. It just does, it doesn't work. And I think... I can understand it at the same time as being frustrated with it. Also, I can understand that idea, Luke. And Jim, as you say, is very upfront. He goes, look, I know people love Derek Forbes and they love Sons of Fascination. They love all that stuff. And he's, he's like, it's there. It's all there for you. I'm, I'm not, no one's taking it away from you. You can listen to it. And, but that's not, you know, as, a, as an evolving artist, you have to keep moving. And whether you agree with what we're doing or not, for me, and it's my life, this is what I want to do. I want to try and create yeah. something new with different people. And I, I think that's a challenge. And, I, I really get it. Fans always want to go back to the golden age, but he's like, it wasn't a golden age. We were stuck in a van. We weren't selling any records. We kept right. we were going to get dropped by the record company. Right. We were, you know, it was, it was, it wasn't miserable, yeah. but we, we had a drive then that kept us going. But we, you don't have now that you own a hotel in Sicily and you're, you live a comfortable life and you want it to be fun as much as anything else, I suppose. Yeah. So I can understand why it would be hard just to say, right, let's all get back in the room and do it again. Mm -hmm. Um, much as it might be attractive and yeah to be fair to them i think they, they did actually try that and yeah for whatever reason didn't didn't work out yeah and uh, i know i'm playing devil's advocate on a lot of this stuff and uh, but i keep mentioning uh, graffiti soul and big music and walk between worlds i think are the best examples of merging what they became what they were with what they became so if you want to hear what the, and, and I don't know how many people are still paying that much attention, like, like we would be, but if you want to hear what that merger sounds like, check out at least the last three albums. Cause they're really strong, you know? Um, okay. Well, let's uh, nerd out for one second. Like, do you have a, what's your favorite song? What's your favorite early days song? And what's your favorite latter day song? Okay. Um, my favorite early days, so, I mean, it does change, but I think the one I would consistently come back to is Entrance's Mission. I think mm -hmm. that to me embodies so much of the kind of drama and scale and rhythmic thrust and strangeness and something in the lyric that's kind of mystical and, and uh, it's not religious, but it's, it, it, it's, it's on a different wavelength, really. Um, the holy backbeat, there's something about that that really sums up Simple Minds at that time. So... And what a way to start a record, you know, it's just, whoa. Um, so that would be my kind of all-time favorite early Simple Minds song. I think the the more recent one I love is Honest Town. Honest Town, I think, is a really, yeah. and it, it hits, it kind of hits that sweet spot of, um, it's kind of new gold dreamy, but it's also got a, a more modern sort of contemporary shine to it. It's kind of know what it's about, but it, it's, it's oblique enough for you to fill in the spaces, which I've always loved about Jim's writing. And it's just beautiful. It's a, it's a kind of dreamy melody, but there's, a, yeah. there's a, something under to it. So um, those would be mine. What about yours? Um, I think Changeling probably yeah. is favorite from the early days. Um, it's funny. I was remembering this, getting ready to talk to you. I remember in college, this would have been the mid-90s. I was in a used CD store, and I found, I saw reel-to-reel -reel cacophony sitting there. I didn't know what that was, but I knew... I, this would have been right around the time that I finally got to see them live with good news, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
there's no internet back then. I don't know that much about anything they did prior to once upon a time. I know they were around, but I didn't know anything. And, um, I love them. And, and the cover is this, you know, just this dense shade of blue. And I thought it was, I think $7 or $8 used in the store. And I thought, yeah, let's check this out. I'll get it. I love simple minds. And I took it home and I could not make sense of any of it. You know, <laughs> I was like, what? is this now i listen to that and i say what is this and it excites me back then it just confused me and i immediately i think i sold it back like a month later and i regret that now because i love it now you know but at the time i was like what in the this isn't even music but changeling sounded the most like something you might hear on a radio (laughs) you know at the time so i really like changeling um yeah and then yeah, the you, can just, you can just you can just about hang on to that as a, as a, right. as a song. Yeah. Um, but actually, just, I, 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 I want to hear. But I've just that, that's that album really is the reason I wrote the book. It's like how who made this music and how yes. was it made? You know, it's yes. like let, let me let's try and solve this puzzle. So that, yes, um, that's kind of the founding stone of the book. But anyway, um, yeah, tell me tell me a little. Um, the latter day, I really like Moscow Underground off of mm. Graffiti Soul. I think it's a great you know first track. And speaking of first tracks, I mean one of my favorite. Simple Mind songs of all is real life off of real life. That that first, it's so big and it's so epic and massive. And uh, just like you know they can be, but in a really great way, it really moves me. Yeah. I love yeah. that one a lot too. Um, okay. And I love right. somebody thought to write this book because it, it desperately needed to be written. And uh, I hope people will check it out, even if they don't know the band or think they know one song or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic ride. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. And that what that was, and it's been one of the great feedbacks I've been getting a lot is um, just people going, "Yeah, I forgot about those records," or I, I, "You know, they were fantastic. They still are." I, and the book is not a repudiation of everything that happened after 1986 by no. any means. I, I love Simple Minds in all their forms, but um, yeah, people just going back to those records and going, "Yeah, I forgot they were those." You know, Empires and Dances and Astonishing Song, or or just album, or just actually finding them out for the first time. So it's it's great to great to hear that's kind of inspired you to go back to those records as well because that's the that's kind of plan good well good thanks for talking and i can't wait to read your other books because uh oh, i love kate bush i love elvis costello i love thin lizzie i love all this stuff so now uh that they're on my radar i gotta pick them all up did you think drugs played a part in there i it seemed to me that taking lsd or smoking weed was at least like a bonding agent for a mm-hmm. while there if you didn't do it, then you were a little bit on the outside. And if you did, it it connected everyone artistically or creatively a little bit. I got that sense. Did you? Yeah, I mean, they were they were all doing bits and bobs and stuff, but some it was you know different chemical equations perhaps amongst the band. I don't think it really played a part actually. In, for example, in Brian leaving, I think it, uh, yeah, I think you know, Sparkle in the Rain sounds to me like a, you know, an album that's that's fairly well fueled on. Um, on, but I don't think it played a part in, in their downfall or in terms of people leaving. You know, um, no, they were never a big drug band. You know, in, in any, it's one of, actually one of the lovely things about writing this book, uh, having written about someone like John Martin, whose life ended, you know, quite tragically. It's, it's actually quite a happy story. You know, no one went to rehab. No one's dead. They all kind of still get on with each other in a funny sort of way. They're all still around. So I like that. It's it's a, yeah. it's a as I say in the introduction, it's a heroic story. I believe that it's these guys who came from pretty modest backgrounds and made something extraordinary out of themselves, and so that's to yeah. be admired. I think. I agree. Yeah, I got that impression too. I didn't think the drugs ruined anything or impacted anything too much. If anything, it was like I said, just sort of more almost social or bonding or whatever. Um, but that was about it. That was something else I want to ask you. You're, it sounds like you have a bit of a history with Simple Minds. You've interviewed them in the past? Yeah, many times. Yeah, I mean, I first interviewed them. Well, it would have been the, it would have been the 5 by 5 tour, um, 2012. It was really when they started. I kind, of, I kind of lost contact, I suppose, with their music a little bit. And then they were coming back to play these early albums. And I thought, okay, this is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed them for The Guardian, the newspaper over here. And yeah, and then interviewed them quite a lot after that. And actually, I mean, they're great. They're really, really good people. And they've been really nice people to deal with, very straight. And um, 
they kind of, as far as going back to the Derek thing, because it's kind of surprising, you know, that they are all about loyalty, really, and, and kind of trusting people in the inner circle. And I think Jim now does look back on that and think, we, yeah, we, could, we should have given him a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, leeway mm-hmm. and sat him down and just talked to him. Right. So, um, yeah, so no, we have a good relationship. I think that, sure. you know, there are other things, hopefully, afoot, I, I can't talk about now, but in terms of their kind of profile and doing more things, I think this thing's happening. So right. they're in a good place at the moment, I think, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I saw them again a couple of years ago. They played a really nice theater here in Denver, Colorado, where I live. Mm-hmm. And I was able to get really close. And it was, uh, you're right, This the their ability now to touch on all facets of the career and have it all be good. They're, they're mm-hmm. not playing to a room that's just there waiting to hear, don't you forget about me. Exactly. They are, they're only playing to people, captive audiences that love all of it. They can put forget about me in the middle of the set and yeah. have 10 more, you know, high points to get to after that. It's not a problem at all. It's great John, for them. Tell me about does anyone remember Alive and Kicking in the States? Because that was a big hit, wasn't it? But it's it interesting kind of you just... say that. <clears throat> I've thought the same thing. I think you would have you'd have to remind them of it. Mm-hmm. Uh if you were to say, you know, what do you think of when you think of simple minds? They would say, don't you? And then if you ask them for more, they, oh, I don't know. And then you would play them a little bit like, oh, you would know this song if you heard it. Same with Sanctify Yourself, yeah. See the Lights. And all the things she said to a certain degree is probably the fifth of those top five or whatever. But the other ones got played on the radio. They were in the top 40. Um, you probably would just have to jog someone's memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. They were, yeah. I think they were... Before the pandemic hit, I think they were coming over. I think I'm right in saying this. They were going to tour with the Jesus and Mary chain. Ooh, really? And they, and they were going to play New Gold. Uh, uh, Jesus and Mary chain were going to play Psycho Candy, or was it Darklands? One, one of the first two records. And Simple Minds were going to play New Gold Dream. Um, I no think that way. was the plan. Yeah. Oh. You know, call, college radio tour. Um, so I don't know if that's still a plan yeah. for maybe next year, but everything's obviously been shifted back so much. I'm not sure. sure. Know what the plan is, but yeah. One other nerdy, since we're still kind of nerding out, what what is the real story of of Lost Boy, aka? It feels so out of character for Jim to make a solo album. Was yeah. something? Was there? A, was there like an off the record reason for that to happen, or was it a sincere like I need to make a solo album thing? No, I think it it started with him wanting to write. Um, I think I'm right. So Ian Cook of Churches, who, who has written a few songs with them. He, he told me, I spoke to him, he said there's about 20 tracks we did. We did a load of stuff, and a lot of it sounds very much like early Simple Minds huh. to the extent where Jim was like, and this is another interesting insight into Jim, he's like, That's, that sounds too much like Sons and Fascination, so we're not going there. So I think the, the, I think the thought originally was that he, he would write, uh, Ian and Jim would write some stuff together, and then Charlie might come in and it would become Simple Minds. And... Um, and instead, it sort of morphed into he, he just they were working in this little studio in Glasgow, and he just kept doing stuff. It was going well, and it became Charlie was I think at that point had young family, and he just um, I don't think it was any great desire to you know I don't think it was a kind of fork in the road where they might split up the band or anything like that. I think it just kind of became its own thing quite organically. I, can't, I need to listen to that. I, I was quite dismissive of that record when it came out, but I haven't listened to it for a while. I, I can't. Um, I can't remember if it was any good or not. <laughs> it, it was okay. It's a little, it's yeah. kind of like I said, that so much of their albums it feels sonically very much the same, not a lot of dynamics. It feels like kind of a lot of chaotic noise mm-hmm. kind of coming at you, and, and, but it's good noise. Um, I remember what my kids were little when that album came out, and one of the songs on there, um, Shadow. The kids always called it the shadow song. I can't remember what the real name of it is, but they always, dad, will you play the shadow song? And so we oh, listen really to the shadow song in the car on a loop all the time. But um, I just remember hearing an interview with Jim around that time and him saying he intended to come over and tour it in the States. But at the time you may remember that, like a, a volcano went off in Iceland or something like Iceland. that. You remember this? And all yeah. these, it was grounding air fair or uh airlines and everything that happened mm-hmm. at that time and apparently he was waiting for the smoke to clear from the thing so he could come tour over here that's what he said in this interview 
Okay. I, which I find interesting because it's like if you can, if simple minds can't get arrested over here, I don't know why you solo can do something. No. But that's what he said. I mean, I do think there was that there was a quite a long period when he was just looking for clues. I think wasn't he? He was just yeah. trying to. I think as much just fire his uh, his kind of muse again mm-hmm. that had clearly gone walkabout for a while, and it's, it may have just have been a, a, an attempt to kind of get things going. Um, yeah. Um, and because he worked with Steve Hillard around that time as well, again, um, in, in the, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they have gone back quite a lot, but I think there's always been, we're going to go back and then we're going to do something fresh with it rather than just kind of recreate what we've done in the past. Um, yeah. Do you have yeah. a least favorite Simple Minds album? Well, I think, I mean, Neapolis, I think, is a, is not a good record. Mm. Um, I don't mind Neapolis. I, I like it. No. Maybe it's because I thought Derek Forbes is back and it's going to be extraordinary and it's, and it, it doesn't kind of, it never gets going, I think. I, I mean, I find things to like in all of them. I, I, so do I, I. I. Yeah, I must admit, because I, I always hear the kind of essence of something, of a good idea in there, and, and there's always a couple of really good tracks on most of them, I think. Um, there's another one I don't like. What's the one? Uh, Cry. Uh, yeah, maybe, Yes. Yeah, Cry is one of my one of the and again I'm with you. I like all of them for various reasons. Cry and Our Secrets Are the Same, which never came out. So that long that lost yeah. album. That period and that just that period right around then the Neon Lights cover album, um, Black and White fifty 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 fit, which I don't know why it's silly, called that. Yeah, these these silly sort of conceptual yeah. kind of yeah they were lost then. I think I don't think yeah. they really. And, you know, Charlie would go, you know, we'd write an album in two weeks and, and then it would take us a year and a half to, to screw it up. And I think that's quite instructive. You know, it's just too much time and not right. enough people, uh, not enough people to tell you, like, it's fine or it's rubbish or yeah. ditch it. Or, um, and I, but I think what you said about sonically, how it's all kind of, and I think that's a problem. I think it's because you don't have drums and bass. It's, it's not real drums and bass anymore. Everything is coming out. And it, it, that really loses that that surge in the early simple minds records where mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's metronomic you know it's not changing but but because someone is playing it mm-hmm. it just gives it such an extra uh power that that yeah um those even the you know the more recent records that i love don't just don't have that because they're mm-hmm. not recorded that way um, that's it yeah. yeah all right well we could keep doing this anyway Thanks again, Graham. I I, I really should, appreciate. We it. should meet meet once a week for a simple mind support session. <laughs> I would do that it's happily. It, I would. It's lonely out there. It's lonely it is. Out there. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. lonely for you. Yeah, over there. Yeah, that's right. No one over. Really? There's no one to talk yeah, to yeah. over here. All right, there you have it, Graham Thompson. I thought that was so much fun. That was one of the most enjoyable conversations I've ever had because I've never been able to nerd out like that about simple minds. Anyway. Huge thanks to Graham. The book is Theme for Great Cities, A New History of Simple Minds. And I'm now gotta go, I gotta go check out all the other books that Graham has written because he's written all these books about people that I love, other people that I have strong feelings for, like Thin Lizzy and Elvis Costello and Kate Bush and on and on and on. So anyway, and Graham is a great guy. Follow him on Twitter. Buy the book from his website if you want. Buy it wherever you want, but just get your hands on it because it's fantastic. Now, I will say the publisher has said a couple of different times that they sent me copies of the book to give away. I've never received those. Um, I read the book on my phone on the PDFs, but if I get these books finally, I will give them away. So again, Patreon supporters, be on the lookout. I will post whenever I receive these books and we'll do another giveaway and you can get your hands on one of these books as well, okay? I want to close it out with Moscow Underground. As I mentioned, this is probably my favorite song of the more recent Simple Minds era. This was on an al- three albums ago, I believe. Graffiti Soul. I love this song. Anyway, thank you to Graham. Thank you to the publishers. And thank you to Jan the Man Makevich for putting everything together. Check out the book, guys. We'll talk to you later. Take me.